Good morning again. As our kids woke up this morning, we're getting ready. Uh, we did not open presents, and Ezra looked at me and said, Dad, are you going to talk long this morning? <laughs> I said, I will let the Lord <laughs> work on your heart. Uh, I'm sure many of you have maybe have done that, or perhaps last night, or looking forward to that. Uh, we did a few yesterday from one set of grandparents, and I've played one round of Battleship, but I've escaped so far playing Pretty Pretty Princess. So I am, I'm thankful for that, but uh, glad that you are here this morning. If you would take your Bible, if you have one, feel free to use the copy there in the pew uh, in front of you. We're going to be looking at Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. If you're using a pew Bible, it is on page 778, page 778 in the pew Bible there in front of you. But let's pray, and then I will read our passage this morning. Father, we give thanks again for the birth of Christ. We give thanks for all that that entails and all that that means for us. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Not that you are for us, not that you oversee us, Lord, but that you have become one of us. And yet, Lord, this is not happening in a vacuum, or this was not uh, a, a, a correction to your plan, but rather it has been your plan Lord, since the very beginning, that you would redeem us from our sin, or that you would bring one forth who would rule and reign as the perfect Savior King. Lord, help us now as we look at your word this morning to give thanks for the birth of Christ and to come humbly to him. We pray in his name. Amen. Hopefully you found your way to Micah chapter 5. I'll be reading verses 1 through 4 this morning. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. And the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is another well-known passage from the Old Testament that we hear often uh, this time of year. Micah 5.2. Oh, you Bethlehem, who are too little, right? We read about it in Matthew chapter 2. There are references to Bethlehem, of course, in Luke 2, as Mary and Joseph head to the city of David. But the term city is, it's a loose use of the term. It's like calling Horton a city, right? In Micah 5.2, it says, Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. That is referring to the fact that Bethlehem wasn't named among the larger cities and towns of the nation of Judah. Bethlehem was known by the region, by the area. That, that is the term Ephratite. It's a term referring to that area around Bethlehem. It's like saying, I'm going to go to church on Sunday morning in Horton. And somebody says to you, Where's Horton? Uh, moving here almost two years ago, 
as we talked with individuals and friends and families, oh, you moved to Horton. So where's Horton? If I said, well, it's, it, you don't know where Horton is? I'd probably say, oh, it's, it's a few miles north of Waverly or from, from Plainfield or just off uh, 218 a few miles. Horton, in a sense, is too small to be, well, have its own address. <laughs> we, <laughs> we have a Waverly address. This is the idea of the humility that is found in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a small town. There's a few locals who know about it, and it had maybe something at one point in time, but now it's, it's just a small village. But yet, this small village demonstrates the work of God in such an amazing way. As we come to Micah 5, verses 1 through 4, we're going to see a contrast here between the humility and the humbleness of Bethlehem and the ruler that's coming from it versus the rulers that were in place in the nation and the way that God interacts with those who claim to be powerful and mighty and proud compared to those who are humble and lowly and trust in him. Our big idea this morning from Micah 5 verses 1 through 4 is this, is that the humble beginning of the Messiah demonstrates God's sovereignty and power in bringing about his plan. The humble beginning of Christ, it demonstrates that God is the one who is ultimately behind this and his plan, his sovereignty, his control and bringing about his plan. And we're gonna look at what is our response to that sovereign plan of God. A little background here in Micah 5. I'm sure Micah is one of those books of the Bible that you just run to all the time, right? No, maybe this time of year, maybe in your Bible reading schedule, uh, you get to the Minor Prophets and you knock Micah out in one day, right? There's, there's six, six chapters, or six, or, um, excuse me, seven, uh, seven chapters, and, and we can just, just get through it, right? On to the next one. But what is happening here in Micah is this. Micah is a prophet, and he's prophesying on behalf of the Lord to Judah. So if you remember, after Solomon, the nation split. You had the 10 northern tribes, and you had the two southern tribes, and the southern tribes, those two, which referred to as Judah, were in a sense the faithful part, even though they were faithless most of the time as well. And the northern tribes, they went into exile around 723 BC. The Assyrians conquered them, but God stopped the Assyrians from conquering Judah. But that didn't mean that God was done with Judah. In fact, about 586 BC, the Babylonians show up on Judah's doorstep. And they're knocking and knocking and saying, hey, we're going to take you over. And despite their best efforts, that's exactly what happens. In God's sovereign plan, God uses a foreign nation to dispense his judgment on the nation of Judah. And this is where we find ourselves. The nation is under siege. It's being attacked by the Babylonians. And Micah is prophesying. Here's a, a mouthpiece of God speaking to this nation and speaking to the king. Most scholars believe it is Zedekiah, who is currently king right now of Judah. And this king is not a good king. He is a weak king. He is a king who's going to be humbled. And we're going to see the contrast of this one ruler of Zedekiah and the way that he is humiliated versus the way that Jesus begins in a sense in humiliation but ends in exaltation. So let's look here at these four verses. Our first point is this, is that pride brings 
humiliation. In the sovereign plan of God, in, in bringing about the Messiah, you either humble yourself before God's plan or you stand in opposition against it. The standing in opposition is a demonstration of pride, saying, no, I know better, God, rather than you. And we see this here very uh, briefly in, in the shade of this in verse 1 of Micah 5. Micah prophesies, he says this, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. That's a funny phrase. But he's speaking to the nation, and he says, Muster your troops. Get your troops ready for battle. And he says, O daughter of troops. You might have a footnote that that term daughter could also be translated perhaps as city of troops. It's communicating to Jerusalem because, in a sense, everybody is a warrior when your city is under siege. They are surrounded by this foreign power. The middle of verse 1, siege is laid against us. It's the idea of being totally encompassed. They are trapped in their own city. And though there are walls and fortifications, at some point, food runs out. Uh, they find out that where the water's coming, and so they, they deal with that, the Babylonian zoo, and they surround them. And before long, they can't hold up against this siege. And Micah's saying, well, muster your troops. Be prepared for sieges coming against you. An enemy is at your doorstep. And it's important to remember why the enemy is there. Why is the nation under siege? It's because of their faithlessness to God. It's because of the idolatry that has crept in among its rulers and its priests and among its peoples. And, and God is saying, I am dispensing my judgment on you by sending the Babylonians to conquer you. It's because of their own pride and selfishness that this is happening. It's because of their own sinfulness, their opposition to God and, and his plan for them. And you might think, well, why should they listen to God? Why do they have to submit themselves to him? And what has he done for them? He's done everything for them. If you know your Bible history even a little bit, you remember how God drew the people out of Egypt. Remember when he split the Red Sea and they walked over on dry ground? Remember they faced many adversaries out in the wilderness and yet God delivered them. Then they came to the Jordan and he stopped the Jordan River from running. And he, through Joshua, delivered the promised land to the nation. Again and again and again, God has shown himself faithful to the people, but yet they in their pride have rebelled against him. This is why this judgment has come upon them. In the last half of verse 1, Micah says, With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. This is the idea of humiliation. With a rod. This rod is an instrument of discipline. It's an agricultural tool that shepherds would use. Think of Psalm 23. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Because the rod was used to fight off enemies, but also discipline sheep. It's the same term from Proverbs when it says, do not spare the rod, in speaking of disciplining children, correcting them. So this term rod here is, is that of correction or discipline. And they're going to strike the judge of Israel. The judge is another term for the king or ruler. Your mind might go to the book of Judges in the Old Testament. The judges, the judge, was in a sense a ruler. It's not a judge in the sense that we think of today of a legal sense, but rather a ruler, someone who was in charge. 
And here it's referring to the king of Israel. With the rod, they are going to discipline the judge, the king of Israel. And look where they discipline him. On the cheek. Hit my microphone right there. On the cheek. Have you ever been slapped? And hasn't it been humiliating? <laughs> Not in a playful way, but in a demeaning way. You're slapped across the cheek. It's, it's humiliating. And to think, here is this proud king of Judah, Zedekiah. He is the king in the line of David. And here he is being disciplined as a child on the cheek. His position is one of power and authority, but yet he is humbled by God through the Babylonians. Pride brings humiliation. The nation itself is being humbled. It has become proud and pompous, neglecting God and his commands, and they have given way to pagan idol worship. They trust in themselves. They fear man more than they fear God. They have committed spiritual adultery against the Lord, and their pride brings humiliation. This pride is demonstrated through the humiliation against the king of Israel, him being struck on the cheek. Here is the king of the nation who, in a sense, represents the nation being brought low. The nation is brought low. The attitude of their heart reflects their spiritual state. They are overcome with their own pride, and they're being humiliated by the Lord. And really, that's the normal pattern of things. What does God say about pride in the New Testament? He says this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's the normal pattern of things. God opposes the proud. Pride was the sin of Satan. Pride is the inward desire to set ourselves up as God. And pride fleshes itself out in many different ways. It, it could be the desire for power. It could be the desire of, hey, look at me. It could be the desire for pleasure and comfort. It could be the desire for protecting oneself. I don't want to do that because I might get embarrassed. That's pride. Just as much as, hey, look at me, is pride. Pride is really the issue at the core of all of our hearts. We want what we want rather than what God wants. Rather than submitting ourselves to the Lord's plan and for us yielding our desires to his will, we say, no, my will be done. And when this happens, humiliation is on the way. Sometimes it happens quickly, right? I can do that, and very clearly you can't. <laughs> but perhaps in your pride that's building over time, and look what I've established, look what I've made of my own life. Look, I, can, I don't need anybody else. I'm self-sufficient. I'm, I'm good. Yet that pride leads to humiliation in the long term, where God humbles us before him. Perhaps in eternity, in punishment, he brings about this humiliation. The fact is, is that the Lord does not let, go, does not let pride go unpunished or undisciplined. And the fact that we are sinners rebelling against the holy, righteous, loving God is the greatest act of sinful pride, and it will be punished. Just as the nation was full of pride and experiencing God's judgment, so we too, as human beings, are rebelling against God, and our greatest need is to be humbled before him. The nation was full of pride and was being humbled by God's sovereign hand, 
through the Babylonians because their pride was bringing humiliation. Merry Christmas. Just, just kidding. If we stopped there, it'd be like, well, that's a downer. But that's not where the Lord stops. That's never where God stops. God deals with sin. God dispenses judgment and justice. But yet in the midst of this, he demonstrates grace and mercy and his own faithfulness. You come to verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Just as pride brings humiliation, humility brings exaltation. Micah switches. He uses that phrase, but you. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. He references Bethlehem. It's, it's, a, it's a backwater town. It's a, it's a small community. The only thing to come out of Bethlehem is what? David. Now that's something pretty good to come out of Bethlehem when you think of it, King David. But apart from that, Bethlehem is relatively unknown. Too little to be among the clans, to have any renown. But he says, from you, O small town, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. From this small, humble town is going to come one who is going to be the ruler in Israel. We see the contrast from the judge who is struck on the cheek as an act of discipline and humiliation to this ruler who's going to come from nowhere to be God's chosen ruler. From you shall come forth for me one who's to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth, forth is from of old, from ancient of days. This ruler is going to be different. This ruler is going to be special because this ruler is eternal. That's what Micah's implying here. His coming forth is from of old, right? He's always been. Jesus has always existed. And here he is coming now. And really, that idea of the coming of old also points back to Genesis 3 and the prophesied seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the snake. Coming forth is from old, from ancient days. This ruler is going to come from Bethlehem, from meager, small beginnings, but he's going to be used by God in amazing ways. In verse 3, Micah switches his perspective here to the timing, in a sense, of when he will come. He says, therefore, he shall give them up until the time that he is God, the Father. He shall give them up, the nation, until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, this idea of this birth of Christ, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. It's this picture of regathering, of a family reunion, that when they are all returned together at the right time, the Savior will come. It's in Galatians 4. When Paul writes to the churches in Galatia, he says, but in the fullness of time, God sent forth Christ, to be born of a virgin, to fulfill the law. This is that time, that completeness when out of exile has come the nation. They've returned and they are together. And we look at the kind of character that this ruler has. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. This ruler 
is going to be a shepherd. Shepherd communicates care and concern, provision, protection, guidance, watching over. That's who Jesus is. In John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Again, we're reminded in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. One of the uh, accusations against the nation of Israel is that the shepherds, the rulers of the people were failing in their jobs, in their duties, in the spiritual care and concern for the nation. But here we have one who's going to be the perfect shepherd. He's going to shepherd his flock, but it's not by his own mind, own strength. But we read in verse four, it's in the strength of the Lord. It's in the strength of the Lord. He is not a wise, powerful ruler because of who he is intrinsically because of his own self, but rather he finds his strength and his power and his means in the Lord. Whereas the kings of Israel and Judah failed by seeking to rule and lead by their own wisdom and power, neglecting God, here is one who's going to do it perfectly in the strength of the Lord. And in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God, this king does not care about his own name, but rather he cares about the name of his God and the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God, right? He's not concerned about his own. He's only concerned about serving his Lord. This morning, as we were getting ready, the kids found the pile of presents that have been wrapped. And do you know what the first thing they did was? Which one's for me? Which one's for me? That's a big one. Oh, that's mine. And several times, Ezra said to me, Dad, I have the biggest present. It's like, great. <laughs> when they looked at that pile of gifts, they were only concerned about finding their own name, what they were going to get. It was all about themselves. And it's children on Christmas morning. To, to, a, to a certain degree, you understand that, but it also shows the sinfulness and the pride of the human heart from a very young age. <laughs> but this ruler is not concerned with his own name. He's concerned with the name of his God. He's not concerned about making a name for himself and the statues they're going to build or the, the buildings they're going to name after him, but rather in serving the Lord. And the result is amazing. They shall dwell secure. The idea of dwelling is living, of resting in security and safety. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And this dwelling is not only for the nation, Micah says, but it's for the entirety of the earth, even to the Gentile nations, God, through Jesus Christ, is going to provide a ruler who's going to provide rest for everyone. That idea of rest. It's such an amazing idea. Because how many of us say, I'm tired? It's a busy season with the holidays, and we long to rest. In Jesus Christ, the world all the nations will have rest. They will dwell secure. And I love, it's really the very beginning of verse 5. One of those places where the people who put in the verses probably made a mistake here. I would have included verse 5 starting in the next phrase. But that phrase, and he shall be their peace, is the conclusion to this idea of who this shepherd is. He shall be their peace. Dare I say that this is the Prince of Peace. The one who will bring peace ultimately between man and 
God. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. Why is there goodwill to men and peace on earth? Because Jesus has come and has provided peace between God, who's holy and righteous, and man, who is sinful and proud. But through Jesus Christ, the perfect God and perfect man, the mediator who stands between God and us and says, no, 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 I am the sacrifice. I am the one who is perfect. And if you believe in me, my righteousness is given to you. Therefore, you can have peace with God. He is the Prince of Peace. He shall be their peace. The Lord demonstrates this through the through the prophet Micah in declaring this wonderful truth about how God is going to provide a ruler, a king who is going to shepherd, not in his own strength, but in the strength of the Lord, in the name of the Lord, pointing people back to him, and he shall be the perfect ruler over the entire earth. This ruler will provide what the previous Davidic rulers have lacked Safety and security to dwell, not only in Israel, but everywhere. And it's not because of the position or power or cunning or whatever human character trait you want to put in the blank that causes this ruler to succeed, but his humble origins and his trust in the Lord, the Lord exalts him. We read of this in Philippians 2. Philippians 2 is a wonderful passage that speaks of Jesus Christ coming as a man. He took on flesh and he dwelt among us and he died on the cross, but in his humiliation, what did God do? The end of Philippians 2, that passage. So therefore God has given him a name that is above every name, that in his name every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The humiliation and the humble beginnings of Jesus are used by God to demonstrate that he is the one who's sovereignly bringing about this perfect Savior King And as he humbles himself and serves the Lord, he is exalted. It's what we've been learning in Mark. Jesus came to serve, not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. The one who had claimed to the entire creation has come to serve it, to save it, to die for it. God uses the humble things to shame the wise. He uses the weak things to break the strong. He uses the simple things to overcome the complex. This is most clearly seen in the death of Christ on the cross for you and for me. And now he humbly calls us to follow him. And we see the fulfillment of this in Matthew 2. So if you would take your Bibles and let's flip to Matthew 2. We see this humiliation or these humble beginnings of Christ and we see the response to them. We see the response to them. In Matthew chapter 2, or the end of chapter 1, we have the interaction between uh, the angel in Joseph's dream telling Joseph, don't divorce your wife, stay with her. The child that she has is from God, and you shall name him Emmanuel, God with us. So Jesus is born, and Joseph fulfills his promise here. And we jump ahead a little bit in Matthew 2, for the child is more than likely older, maybe an infant of some sort. And Jesus was born in the days of Herod the king. And the wise men come from the east, for they have seen a star, it says. 
And what do they ask in verse 2? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when, he, when it rose and have come to worship him. They have heard, they have seen the signs and God's sovereignty and in the exile of the nation have left this wisdom with these men from the east and they have seen his star and they've come to worship the king. They have come to offer gifts. They have come to humble themselves before him and humble themselves before a child, an infant, whether it was a few months old or a year old. But imagine that. Rulers, powerful men from kingdoms far away have taken the time, the effort. It's different than hopping on a plane <laughs> to ride thousands of miles to come to see a child. Now you might do that for your new grandchild, right? You would travel a long distance to see your new grandbaby. But if it's not your grandchild, I'll just look at the pictures on Facebook. Like I don't need to make the, the trip to see them. But here, these men travel to humbly come to worship the newborn king. What an act of humility on their part. But they come and they ask, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? Verse 3, and when Herod heard the king, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chiefs, priests, and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, and for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. You see kind of this summary of this prophecy. They knew that it was going to happen in Bethlehem, this small town. And it's interesting. What is the response of the wise men, and what is the response of Herod? The wise men came to humble themselves and worship this child. Herod instantly is threatened and wants to kill this child. And he does that. He sends out this decree to kill male children ages two and under. He was afraid of this, in a sense, child. In his pride, he wanted to consolidate his own power. Because this child has been born in Bethlehem. The wise men coming to see the one born king of the Jews. Herod fears the one who is born king of the Jews. And what is the response? One is one of worship and humility. And the one is pride and sin. So as we come to the birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem, as we hear of it like the wise men and Herod did, the question then is, are you going to respond in pride and scoff at this birth and think this is just a fairy tale from thousands of years ago? Are you going to humble yourself and say, no, this one is the Savior who has been born of a virgin, who has come to die? I love that phrase from Hark the Herald Angels sing, born that man no more may die. Through Jesus Christ, we have eternal life. Through the simple beginnings in a small town, a child was born, but this child changes everything. The sovereign hand of God is at work. Through the humble beginnings of the Messiah, we see how God is sovereignly working all these things together. And so what is your response 
the plan of God? Is it one of pride and opposition or one of humiliation and humbly saying, God, this is what I need and you have provided it? Because our greatest need is the need of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. For you and I are sinners. We are all born sinners. Sin entered in all the way back in the Garden of Eden through Adam and Eve, and sin is passed to all men, it says in Romans 5. And all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, we are at opposition and enemies of God. Yet God does not utterly destroy us, but what does he do? He sends a baby and a wonderful act of love and mercy and grace. He sends Jesus Christ, his own son, to be born. And he lives a perfect life. And and at the end of his life, he is sacrificed on a cross for you and I. He bears the punishment that we deserve. But yet, death could not hold him. He overcame the grave. He declared victory over Satan Satan and, and has overcome sin. And so now the offer is made to all. Will you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone? Will you recognize that baby who was born in the manger as the Savior King who has come to redeem us? This is the greatest act of humility before the Lord. But yet when we humble ourselves before the Lord, he doesn't keep us down there. What does he do? He says, here's eternal life that you can spend with me forever. We humble ourselves at the foot of the cross and we are exalted and we will be glorified to spend eternity with God forever. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble and that grace is seen most clearly and fully in Jesus Christ. God uses the things that we would not think to work out his plan. Listen to this quote as we close. It's a little lengthy, but I think you'll enjoy it. By supernatural intervention, both David's place and David's person are miraculously transformed from lowly meanness to exalted greatness. And in that way, they become a shadow, a type of the career of David's greater son, Jesus. Bethlehem, too little, too despised, and too weak to be mentioned by the cartographer who listed the towns of Judah in the beginning of Joshua, or even by Micah in his lists of towns that fell to the Assyrians in chapter 1. Fittingly, this town becomes the birthplace of the lowly Jesus, who was born in a stable, whose birth was announced to lowly shepherds, and who was circumcised by parents too poor to offer as their sacrifice at his circumcision anything more than turtle doves that migrated through the land in the spring and the fall, or even young pigeons that could be had by anyone for the taking during the other two seasons. Even children could catch these birds in their hands. The Messiah's success depends on God's sovereign's grace, on God's election, intervention, and empowering. He renounces all human pomp and circumstance and power so that it might be evident to all that I am has chosen him and is his strength and that he himself is I am. His rise to universal and eternal significance defies man's ways and thoughts and can be best accounted for by divine intervention and enablement. Indeed, he triumphs not as the Gentiles by exalting himself and lording it over others or by honing his natural resources, but rather by committing himself in faith and obedience to his God who elected him and delighted in him. His lowliness with reference to human ambition and standards of strength and majesty, and correlatively his faith in God's choices and strength, 
prompted him to ride as a lowly king into Jerusalem on a donkey, an animal about the size of a great Dane dog, and led him to the despised cross on the way to his exaltation at God's right hand and his universal sway. History mutely bears witness that human ways to greatness lead finally to humiliating defeat, whereas God's ways lead ultimately to glorious triumph. What was said there is that God, through Jesus and the humiliation of his birth as a baby in Bethlehem through different aspects of his life, lead ultimately to the glorious triumph of the cross and the resurrection. Whereas the things that man clings to as power and might and strength leads ultimately to humiliation and destruction. So the question then for us this morning is what is your response? Are you going to respond in pride to God's sovereignty and his power in bringing about the plan of the Messiah? Or will you respond in humility? My plea this morning is that you will respond in humility. If you do not know Jesus Christ, that is humbling yourself before the cross and trusting in Jesus Christ alone as your Savior. If you do know Christ, it's the continual recognition that you are serving someone else. You are not serving yourself. But that someone that you're serving is the good shepherd, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, the one who is good and just and perfect and the one who is our peace. So this Christmas season, humble yourself before the one who was humbled for us, before that baby that was born in the manger, before that man that died on the cross, and before the one who was raised again from the dead, to understand that from the tiniest of towns comes one who changes everything. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to worship you this morning. Help us now. As we go about our day rejoicing, celebrating that we would not neglect the fact that you have sovereignly provided for us a way to be humbled and to be exalted, to have our sins forgiven and to be made right with you, to have peace with you. Lord, that's through Jesus Christ alone. May we give thanks and rejoice as the angels did thousands of years ago. Born is the new born king. We pray in his name. Amen.